Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are finally out of Hebrews chapter 11. It took us a long time to take that journey, but I wanted us to take a long journey through Hebrews 11 because it kept taking us back to the Old Testament. And, you know, we're, we're not as familiar with our Old Testament as, as we should be. And so the original audience was, and they had familiarity with these stories. We're not quite as familiar. And so we're kind of shifting gears when we get into Hebrews chapter 12, sort of. So I'm going to begin with the question, and I think I know the answer to it, but... When the Christian life gets difficult, do you think there's a strong temptation to lose focus, to lose heart, and to want to give up? Anybody ever been there before at times? I wouldn't say that you're like that way every day, but there may be times in your life where you just want to throw in the towel. And so the question that we're going to look at, I think that Hebrews chapter 12 really addresses is this. What does it look like for us to endure... Okay, there it is. <laughs> I didn't see the, I didn't see that come up. That was on two different screens. What does it look like for us to endure and have persevering faith in the midst of trials and temptations? So what does it look like to endure? Uh, that's going to be the key word that we're going to see here as we start is the word endure. Endurance. So let's just read Hebrews chapter 12. We're just going to focus part one tonight on verses 1 and 2. And I want to draw your attention to how it starts. So you guys look at chapter 12. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. I'm all confused tonight, aren't I? We'll get it. We'll get it done. So So as you guys look in your Bibles at chapter 12, verse 1, what word starts it? Hopefully in all your translations. Therefore. Therefore. Okay. And so hopefully by now you know, ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. Okay. Okay. it is a transitional word that's used to draw attention to what he's just said and to kind of bring a summary statement or a conclusion or, or bring everything to a close. And so really, in your original Bible, in the original manuscripts, you did not have chapter breaks, like chapter 12 and verses. Um, these were manuscripts that were written as, as epistles or letters. And so I don't know personally... I would think chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 should actually still be part of verse 11. But for the sake of the chapter verses, they, this is the way the translators have done it. But I think he's, I really think chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 11. All of the different people that he's been showing us. Okay, so let's, let's read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've seen the hall of faith We've seen all these people. Now the writer of Hebrews gives this strong therefore. And the primary command in this passage of Scripture is let us run. 
It is a strong exhortation. What's an exhortation? It's not necessarily a command. It's more of a strong encouragement. And it's in the present tense. Okay, so you could translate that literally in the original language. Let us, I I highly strongly encourage us to keep on continually as a lifestyle running the race. Okay, so let's just stop right there. Is the Christian life a race that we just kind of sprint and run and it's over? What is it? We're constantly running the race. Okay? So let's approach this text like a good journalist. And let's ask some key questions. The who, what, why, where, and how. Okay? We've already seen the what. What's the what? Run the race with endurance. So that's, that's the main thing we're supposed to do. So, so we're supposed to run the race. With endurance. Keep on continually running the race with endurance. Okay? But why? Let's ask the question, why? What is our motivation to run this race? What keeps us motivated? What spurs us on to run? And he gives the answer there. How does he start it? Therefore, since we're what? Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So the motivation for us to run, the reason that we're to run with endurance is that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, there's been a lot of misinterpretation of this passage of Scripture. There's been a lot of uh, speculation about this. Um, How many times have you heard somebody say, The people that have died before you are up in heaven and they're in the stadium looking down and they're cheering you on as you run and so all the witnesses are up in heaven cheering you on. Have you ever heard that verse talked about like this? That the witnesses are, hi Marie, that the witnesses are those who are in heaven looking down upon your life and they're cheering you on as you run. Anybody ever heard that interpretation? Okay, so some people come up with that interpretation. I don't think that's what the writer is making. I think it's just the opposite. What's the point? What's he just spent the whole last chapter doing? He's been giving us example after example of witnesses in chapter 11. We've read about their faith. We are to look to them as the example. They're not supposed to be looking at us. We're to be looking at them as models of obedience. So why would he just spend chapter 11 talking about all these Old Testament saints? He's basically saying, look, I've spent this past chapter given you example after example. I've talked about Enoch. I've talked about Noah. I've talked about Moses. I've talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, the Israelites going into Jericho, all of these stories. These are examples. These are witnesses. These are the cloud of witnesses that you're to look at. And when you look at their faith, come on in, Nick. Okay, is, it, is are we ready to start? <laughs> Starting. Okay, that's all right. Let's see if one more person comes in. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. That's too bad. The doors at the front of the room, because you can't sneak in. And when we used to be in the old room, when it, yeah, anyway, whatever. So, when you look at these Old Testament people as examples, they're supposed to be a motivation to you. That's why he spent. Chapter 11 showing us time after time who these people are. They're the cloud of witnesses that give us the motivation to run. Okay, so what are we to do? The what is, okay, the what is we're to run the race. Why? 
we've got this cloud of witnesses that's, that's our motivation, our, our example. The next question is a little bit harder. The next question is how. Okay, how are we to run this race? There's two commands here. One is negative. One is positive. Let's start with the negative command. Do you guys see it there? Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, what's the, what does he say there? Lay aside every weight. We are commanded to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. This is really taken from the, the imagery of the Olympics. Um, you've seen it even in our day. Does a track runner wear their warm-up gear when they're out on the track? What do they want to do? They want to strip, they want to strip down to where they've got the, 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 the shortest shorts. and the, I mean, and even the swimmers, what do the swimmers do? They usually shave their, their body hair and wear the cap. You want the least amount of resistance when you're swimming, when you're running. And so this whole idea here is that you've got these, these weights, you've got these impediments, you've got this stuff that comes and it, cl- it clings to you. Okay? So... Notice the wording he says there. Mine says lay aside um, or, or put off. Does anybody have a different terminology besides put off or lay aside? Verse 1. Throw off, lay aside, put off. Um, it's an idea of clothing. Basically, you guys know the image. When a track star gets up to, to run, what does he do? Takes off his warm-up gear, takes off anything that's going to slow him down, and he gets ready to run the race. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is in the spiritual realm, we've got to put off, take off everything in our life that's going to hinder us from running the race with endurance. Okay, And so what is he going to tell us to do? Put it off. Now this imagery of putting off and putting on is found in the rest of the Bible. For example, in Romans 13, 12-14, Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, then let us cast off or take off works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul often uses this metaphor of putting on clothes. You put on Jesus like you put on clothes, meaning He he clings to you, He's close to you, you take off, the stuff that's going to get in your way, the stuff that's going to weigh you down. Ephesians 4, 22-24, Paul also says, Put off your old self, that, that sinful man, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. So you don't want to have any impediments, any resistance, anything in your life that's going to hinder you, hamper you from running the race with endurance. But notice that this is more difficult than it appears. What does he say? He says, lay aside every weight and the sin, which what? It clings to us. It entangles us. Come on in, guys. Yes, Marie? Oh, I was just thinking, like, it's the difference between just throwing off your clothes or jumping in a pool 
And then it's not so easy because it's, it's just wet. It's just sticking to you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's clinging to you. And if something clings to you, what does that mean? Well, actually, in the, riddle, in the original language, I think some translations, I don't know if the NIV probably maybe gets it a little bit. And the, the word really means ensnares or entangles, trips us up. Tangled trips, sticks closely. Okay, so let's think about this. Let's say that a runner gets up to run, and um, he doesn't have his gym shorts. He's got his shorts on, but he doesn't have his sweats all the way off. And, the, and, and he's ready to go, and the gun fires, and he's like, i got to run this race. And so he's running like, you know how little kids run? when they, they're, they're, Like they're running like this, and he trips over and he falls because he's got a, something that's weighing him down. He hasn't taken it all the way off. And so the thing that's interesting here is it's, he calls it sin. So let's just ask a question. Does sin entangle us? Does it weigh us down? Does it impede us? Does it ensnare us? Is it hard to get rid of at times? Okay. So that's the, that's the negative one. Get rid of sin. The first thing he says here is lay it aside, put it off, take it off, <coughs> kill sin, get rid of sin. It's going to entangle you. Okay. So, so number one, how do we do it? Where's my pen? Where's my... Here it is. How? Number one, negative, negative, put off or kill sin. Get rid of the sin that entangles you. That's the negative. Get, get rid of something. Number two, though, is positive. Let us run with endurance. So the second really thing is this whole idea of running with endurance the race set before us. He, he, he introduces a word here, the race. The race. Now, in that culture, the race was part of the pentathlon of the ancient Olympic Games in Greece. It was a marathon, not a sprint. The very word race is where we get our English word agonize. It was a contest, a brutal marathon, a grueling race that evoked images of exerting maximum effort to reach the finish line. I'm not a runner. Here's my philosophy about running. You should not run unless you have a ball in your hand or a dog is chasing you. But just to go out and run for the sake of running, I don't get it. Okay? Like, why, did, why do people run? They just, they're out there jogging. Like, there's no ball in your hand. There's no dog chasing you. You're just running. So I'm not a runner. Okay? I like other types of sports, but I, I know what it's like to run a marathon. Um, I wrote. I, I wrote. I um, I ran a 5K race one time, and that was about the longest. Anybody ran run like a really long marathon? Jeff, didn't you? You guys did the triathlon, didn't you? I can't swim. So you I can't swim. Oh, okay, you did the triathlon, didn't you? Where you swam and ran and biked. How long was it? It was it like 10 it miles. Was just a starter one. Well, you still did it. So <laughs> better better than I could do it. So 50 yard dash is easy. What's 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 over a 50 yard dash? You're what? You're done. Yeah. And like, if you're really fast, like five seconds. Um, but a marathon takes a long time. It's a lifetime. Okay? And so the key word in this passage is endurance. So I'm just going to ask you guys a question. What, um, what images come up in your mind when you, when you think about the word endurance? To endure. Persevere. Persevere, okay? Steadfast. Pain. Steadfast. Pain. <laughs> No pain, no gain. Staying on, the right Staying on the right track. Okay. 
Do you think that the characters that we just looked at in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, do you think they endured? Think about Noah for a moment. How long did he endure? 120 years building that ark. Remember, every time he's out there hammering the nail and people are walking by like, what are you building? It's an ark. What's an ark? It's a big boat. What's a boat? Well, it's a thing that, that you float in when water comes. What's water? Well, I don't know, but God told me to build it. And so for like 120 years, he's doing this thing. Abraham, how did he endure? Remember the three-day trek up Mount Moriah? He was about ready to kill his own son. He had to endure that. Moses endured the Israelites for how long? Forty years. Joseph endured the wickedness of his brothers, not to mention all the people that we saw last week that were sawn in two and thrown into the, um, you know, that were being flogged and, and beaten and all that kind of stuff. So is the Christian life a life of warfare? Don't, don't let anybody tell you that when you become a Christian, everything's going to be easy. Okay? Um, you, you hear the prosperity gospel out there that says, you know, if you just trust Jesus, He will make all your dreams come true. You'll have no problems. You'll have the, 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 the things that are coming to you. Um, you're going to have all of these. You're going to be a blessed person. Now, when you become a Christian, are you a blessed person? Yes, Ephesians 1 says we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ. Does that necessarily mean that you're blessed with material wealth and no problems? No. no. You're blessed with the presence of Christ, your salvation. So the Christian life is a marathon to be run with endurance. Okay? There's a spider on the wall. There's a spider on the wall. And you can either grab it, kill it, or squish it, however you want to do Okay, again, guys, the, the verb runs in the present tense. I think it's important. Uh, Greek tenses are important, especially when something's like in the present active. Um, keep on running. Keep on doing. Don't give up. It's a marathon. Be steady. Run with endurance. Now, I want to show you something here. Notice what he says here. It's the race that's set out before us. Now, you could just skip over that and say, okay. But what does that tell us? It's a race set. The race is already set out before us. The race means God has determined beforehand in His sovereignty your race. He set the boundaries. He set the finish line. God's going to make sure you get to the end. God's going to, if you're a Christian, God will make sure you finish the race. Yes? Oh, I was just going to say, I like that verse where it talks about how our, uh, our boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. And then we know he orders our, our footsteps. Yeah. So. Anybody know that passage of scripture she just quoted? It's probably in Proverbs somewhere, Psalms. I know what she's talking about. I just don't know how the address to it. But the Lord has ordered Ephesians our stuff. Like yeah, Ephesians 2.10. God, ha- yeah, we are Christ's workmanship. Yeah, created for good works in which God has called us to walk in. If you're a Christian, God has set out the race for you. He will make sure you reach the finish line. Philippians 1.6, what does it say? I am confident of this, or I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to halfway, right? <laughs> what does it say? He will, make sure you're awake out there. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're, we're being good journalists. What are we supposed to do? We're to run the race. Why are we to run the race? Because all these cloud of witnesses give us encouragement. How are we to run the race? Well, let's put off the sin and things that entangle us. How else are we to run the race? With endurance. Okay? Let's just finish with the, the, the most important question. 
and that is the who. All of this means nothing without the who. What exactly is the finish line, or to ask it more precisely, who is the finish line? <laughs> Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus. I think the NIV says, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's also in the present tense. Literally, we are to be constantly, continually, as a lifestyle, fixing our gaze on Jesus. Our eyes should always be intently focused on Jesus as the finish line, as the prize. What happens in a race if you take your eyes off the prize? You've seen it before. You either stumble, you lose, you go to the right or to the left. What's the first thing they tell you? If you do track and field as a kid, like I did, I was a swimmer as a kid, I did track and field all the way, you know. What's the first thing that your coach tells you? Never look to the side. Always look to the finish line. That's what you want to focus on. And so the question is not what's the finish line. The question is, in this race, who's the finish line? It's Jesus. Jesus is the prize. Here's a powerful truth. That, uh, let, me, let me just give you a... Um, why do we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Let me give you the words to a song. You guys all know this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Listen to the words of the one of the verses. Um, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How often are we prone to wander? Yes, that's the point. Yeah, the Bible is, keeps us on the track, and that's, what, that's how we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, is we look to Him in the Scriptures, and we pray, and we, and we seek His will, and that keeps us gazing. <coughs> and here's the thing, and I've said this a lot over the years, but here's a powerful truth we need to have embedded in our hearts. The more you look at Christ, the more He becomes glorious to you. But you must look at Him. You must fix your eyes on Him. You must keep your gaze upon Him. Now, you may, at this point, you may be confused. Keep my eyes on Jesus. Well, I don't physically see Jesus. Anybody here see Jesus? I'm going to talk to you afterwards if you've seen Him literally. Where is Jesus right now? Well, it says right there, He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is resurrected in heaven. So the question is, well, how do you, how do you see Jesus? Does he physically show up to you in your bedroom while you're shaving and tell you to write a book about it, like some televangelists? I mean, if your name's Jesse Duplantis, that happens to you, or other people like that. How do you see Jesus? Well, look, listen to what, how Paul prays it in Ephesians 1, 8, 18. Having the eyes of your hearts. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to sing this song. Okay. That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So Paul, in Ephesians 1.18, he's praying for the, for the Ephesian church that God would open the eyes of their heart to see the glories of Christ. Um, we know Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. through 6. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, is blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from what? Seeing the light of of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So how do we see Jesus? What what does Paul say in verse 5? What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We preach Christ. We preach Him crucified. We preach Him as Lord. And when that happens, what happens? 
God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the question is, we should be praying for God to open the eyes of our heart to see the glories of Christ. Where do we most clearly see that? In the scriptures. You see the glories of Christ in the Bible. Not what you make up in your mind who he is, but how the Bible reveals him to you. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Keep your eyes constantly gazed on Jesus as the prize. But that's not all the verse says. Why? Why do we do that? What's so unique? What's so valuable about Jesus? Well, we're not left to guess. What does he tell us in the rest of verse 2? Looking to Jesus, who was, first of all, the founder and perfecter. We'll get to that in just a moment. The founder of our faith. Two words, founder and perfecter. First of all, he's the founder. We've seen this word before. It really means uh, commander, prince. It's used only four times in the Bible, and each time it speaks of the unique role of Jesus being our our leader. Author. Author, yeah. Author is sometimes what it's used. Founder, author, leader, captain, um, Acts 5, 30-31, the God, of, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader. The, the, the ESV there uses that same Greek word, but it uses it leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So it means leader, founder, author, captain, prince, king, whatever words you want to, want to use. He's also used it earlier. Go back to um, Hebrews 2.10. He used it earlier in the, in the, in the book. Um, in Hebrews 2.10, for it was, yeah, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Same word there, the founder, the author, the leader. Pioneer. pioneer, okay. Well, that's good, because guess what my next point is? <laughs> this word also has a very unique meaning. It can also mean pioneer or trailblazer. Because Jesus has gone before us and he died for us, he's the commanding officer who's the pioneer of our faith. One commentator I looked at used the word champion to fit the athletic metaphor of running the race. No matter how you look at it, what is it saying about Jesus? He's our leader. He's our captain. He's our author. He's the one that leads us. He's the king. He's the prince. He's the pioneer. All of these different things. Victorious, yes. But the second thing there it says is not only is he the pioneer, the champion, the prince. What does it say there? He is the author and what? Perfector. The perfecter of our faith. Meaning that he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to make sure that we make it to the end of the finish line. He's the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. He will sustain us to the end. He will ensure that we finish the race as the perfecter of what? Our faith. So he started our faith. He's going to end our faith. He's the alpha of our faith. He's the omega of our faith. And everything in between, it's all about Jesus and keeping our eyes upon him. He started it. He's gone before us. He's our leader. He's our captain. He's our pioneer. He's going to make sure we finish it. And he's going to be there at the end as the prize. Now, One of the things 
that we see here about Jesus and, and how he accomplished that. How did he accomplish it? Who for the joy that was set before him. Notice it says he endured. What's the key term here? We are to run the race with endurance. Jesus endured the cross. And how did he endure it? Despising the, the shame. Okay? I don't know if we really understand the full weight of what the cross was in that culture. Um, two things about the cross in that culture. One was the way that the Jews viewed it, and one was the way that the Gentiles viewed it. So for the Jews, they went back and looked at the book of Deuteronomy and said, whoever's hanging on a cross or hanging on a tree, that is evidence that that person was cursed of God. God had forsaken that person. God had cursed that person. That person was cursed of God. Now, let me just ask you a question. Is that true of Jesus? Be careful. God forsook, God forsook him for, for our sake. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So in a sense, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, Galatians 3, 14-ish, don't, uh, not exact, somewhere around there. Let me just, let, let me just make sure I get the right address because I, I didn't put this in your notes. But in Galatians, it actually says this. I've got a, I've got a verse that says this. Uh, Galatians oh, 3, thir- 13. I was one verse off. Gala- just turn to Galatians 3.13 for a moment. Galatians 3.13, it actually tells us this, that Jesus... Yeah, yeah, if I have you forsaken me. To the Jews, they thought that a person hanging on the cross had been abandoned, had been cursed, had been left for dead by God. Read Galatians 3.13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree and if you look at the footnote there um, I think it's Deuteronomy 21 23 is what that's quoting so to the Jewish mind if you were hanging on the cross it was the ultimate of shame because you were forsaken by God to the Gentile wasn't so much that you were forsaken by God because they were pagan To them, it was shameful because only the cross was reserved for criminals or rebels or people that wanted to... The worst of criminals or rebels that wanted to overthrow the government. So either way you looked at it, in that culture, to hang on the cross was shameful. To a Jew, it was shameful because you were abandoned by God. To a Gentile, it was shameful because it meant that you were a criminal. So think about Jesus as he's hanging on that cross... In the shame of hanging on that cross, did he deserve that? No. Was he a sinner? No. And this always amazes me every time I think about this. The very first time Jesus ever experienced sin in his life was not his sin. It was when he was hanging on that cross experiencing our sin. And it wasn't just a little bit. It was the mass concentration of all of our sin. And not just our sin, but God's punishment against that sin being taken in His body. The sinless Son of God suffering the shame. And so, what I wrote here is this. The cross will never be sweet to us if we don't realize that we deserve to be there hanging and dying for our own shame. But is the cross the final act? What does He say there? 
Where's Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's seated at the throne of God, meaning what? He has risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father, and right now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Go back to Hebrews 10 for just a moment, 12 through 14. This was back when we were in 8, 9, and 10 looking at the, um, the Old Testament sacrificial system in comparison to Jesus being the better. Just look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. We kind of have this concept already. It says this, um, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus died on the cross. And I've talked about this before. If you remember from the Old Testament and you looked at the Holy of Holies, and, and, that, and if you remember from a few months ago, what was the one piece of furniture that was not in the Holy of Holies? A chair. A chair. And why was there not a chair? Because the priest could never sit down. He's always making sure the showbread's good and the candles are lit and the incense. He never had a chance to sit down. Jesus actually goes into the Holy of Holies. He makes propitiation for sin And then because it's once and for all, final, and he rose again, he sits down. It's not like Jesus is lazy. It's not like, oh, Jesus is kicking back in his easy chair. Sitting down is a reference to the fact that it's complete. It's finished. He's at the right hand of God. Okay? But the one thing that's interesting about this that I want to show you is something very important. How this relates to chapter 11. I, I kind of alluded to this last week. Notice in Hebrews chapter 11... Not once are we ever commanded to do anything. Did you realize that? We're not commanded to do anything. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. Are we ever told to do anything? It's all indicative. It's all giving us example after example. It's just the writer's giving us information about these people, but not once does he ever tell us, not once does the writer say, fix your eyes on Moses. Fix your eyes on Abraham. Fix your eyes on Noah, on Joshua, David. We're never called to fix our eyes on these Old Testament people. But there's one who's worthy of our gaze, and his name is Jesus. Why? He's the champion. He's the perfecter. He's the author. He endured the cross. He's at the right hand of God. And so we need to think about this. Yes, we get encouragement and inspiration from these Old Testament people, but none of them can save you from your sins. None of them can give you the power to live the Christian life. None of them rose again from the grave. Only Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, I want to go into the Holy of Holies for a moment of a passage of Scripture right here that I have meditated on for a long time, and I still don't think I fully grasp. Did you catch a little phrase there in verse 2? I saved it for last because it doesn't make sense for the joy that was set before him. So I don't know if we can fully comprehend this because it's what Jesus experienced, but the question is why would enduring God's wrath, becoming sin for us and being forsaken by the Father, experiencing the shame of hanging on the cross, why would that bring great joy to Jesus even before he went there? Yes? Because uh, he was accomplishing God's will for his life and being obedient. Exactly. That's number one. <laughs> exactly. So, 
It's a, a profound thought to think about the joy of Jesus in the cross. I can't even begin to expound upon why this brought great joy, but let me just give you two reasons. And I think you guys got the first reason. I think it brought joy to do the ultimate will of his Father. He willingly went to the cross because this was the predetermined plan of the Trinity and how to save, save, how to save sinners. And I think Jesus had joy because what does John say? I don't know the verse. I think it's John 8 something. I'm, I'm having a lot of verses in my head tonight. They don't have the addresses. But what did Jesus say? I always do what pleases the Father. That was his heartbeat. I always do the will of the Father. So even to the very moment when he's hanging on the cross, I think it brought great joy to Jesus that he was accomplishing the will of his Father. He was being obedient to his Father. Okay, so there's a vertical aspect to it. Jesus is being obedient to his Father. It brings him great joy to accomplish redemption. But I want us to think about the horizontal about us for a moment. He's done everything that is God Yeah, exactly. But secondly, I... Th- yeah, but secondly, I think it brought Jesus great joy because in the cross, what was he doing? He was purchasing us, his people. He knew that on the other side of the cross and resurrection, he would have a people, his own, the bride, the church, his sheep. Now, I don't have this in your notes, but go to Isaiah. It just popped in my head. Go into Isaiah 53 for a moment. And you guys all know Isaiah 53 is a, is a messianic prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross. It's one of the biggest books in the Bible. Besides Psalms. Yeah, go, go like the Psalms and go 53. Um, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Give us a hint into this. Again, I don't think we can, I don't think you and I can ever fully understand the joy that Jesus experienced on the cross. Number one, we're not Jesus. Number two, none of us will ever experience the cross. And you're talking about a joy of God. The best thing we can do is read about it and try to understand it. So, yeah, yes, ma'am. Oh, I was just thinking about when Stephen was being stoned and he looked up and yeah. into the sky and, you know, yeah. his face was radiant. Yeah, that was pretty close. All right, so Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is talking about God's, God's plan to crush or Jesus to become cursed on the cross. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see his offspring. Here's the way I take it. I could be wrong, but here's the way I take it. I think that what Isaiah is saying there is that there's a moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross... And he sees us. And he knows he's purchasing us. And he dies joyfully because it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see his offspring and he will be satisfied knowing that he completed the Father's will. He purchased us as his own. And what's awaiting him on the other side of the cross is his people that he purchased, the church. The bride and the groom type thing. Okay? Spurgeon said this, it's so it's good to quote Spurgeon when you can. Can you gaze upon him without tears as he stands before you as the picture of agonizing love? Pray that Christ would print the image of his bleeding self upon the tablets of our hearts all day. That's a great word. 
Can you gaze upon him without tears as he stands before you as the picture of agonizing love? Pray that Christ would print the image of his bleeding self upon the tablets of our hearts all day. That's what it means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That he would become so precious and so sweet and so powerful to us in his bleeding cross that every day we would set that before us and that our eyes would be open to the glories of Christ and the cross and that would be our ultimate motivation to run the race because he's our prize. All right, that's the end of part one. Let's get to part two, verses 3 through 17. Okay, he's given us a treatment of faith of all these people in chapter 11. He's told us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now he's going to tell us to (laughs) endure some hardships, even if that means getting spanked by your dad, okay, or getting disciplined by your heavenly father, okay? So let's read 3 through 17, okay? Here we go. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Notice the first word in verse 3, consider him. It's an interesting word in the Greek text because it's the only time this word shows up in the New Testament. And it means to reason with careful deliberation. Reason. It means to deeply meditate on the sufferings of Christ. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, keep on meditating upon Jesus' suffering. Why? What does he say there? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What's going to happen as you run the race? You're going to get weary and faint-hearted, aren't you? You're going to want to stop and take a rest. You're going, to be, you're going to want to wander over off the meadow path and get somewhere over here. 
You're going to get distracted over here. Your eyes aren't going to be on Jesus. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get battle scarred. You're going to get tempted by the enemy. All these things are going to happen to you. You're engaged in this brutal battle. And that's what he says. Look at verse um, 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted the point of shedding your blood. That's That's a bloody battle with sin. And so here's a question that I have often asked over the years, and I've had people ask it, and I think we've talked about this over the years. Here's a big question. How do I know that what I'm suffering is one of these three things? How do I know I'm not just suffering trials that come as part of living in a fallen world? How do I know it's not spiritual warfare? Or three, how do I know it's God's discipline due to my sin? And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the three. And sometimes it could be a combination of all three. I don't think he's mentioning so much spiritual warfare per se. I think what he's really focusing on here is the fact that we suffer because... Whoops, did she put that in there? Sometimes... Oh, she didn't put it in there. Sometimes we suffer because we haven't resisted sin in our lives and we face the horrible consequences of sin, which leads to God's discipline. Would you agree that believers from time to time may experience the discipline of God as a consequence of sin? Okay. It's different than just going through a trial. Now, it could be. I, again, I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to navigate um, how it all works together. Yes, yes, Joe. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's the key. Yeah, and and we have to. I think we really need to be real with ourselves because for each one of us, I mean, we, we have things that we know. Um, Ten Commandments: Don't sure. don't tell a lie. But sometimes God calls you. Like for example, in my life, the Bible says that we can drink alcohol but not to be drunk. But in my life, I honestly believe God has called me not to drink. Mm-hmm. So for me to drink is a sin. Right. And um, you know when you do it. Yeah. And you know you're wrong. Yeah. So I think that's probably the yeah. key here. Yeah. I think and, that's a good point. And, and sometimes though we kind of kind of make it, well, you know, it's not so bad because after all, all my other guys, all my other buddies that are good Christian guys are having a beer, it wouldn't be such a big deal just to have a sip or two and fit in. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Nah, because God has called me not to do that. I, so I can't make my standard their standard, or vice versa, their standard my standard. And so sometimes we warn it off, like, well, you know, it's really not that bad. Mm-hmm. Well, the next thing you know, you're polishing off a six-pack with your buddy, and well, <laughs> I guess maybe now we finally got the sin. Yeah, yeah. So I think we have to be real with ourselves and yeah. what sin really is. And yeah. then this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit is in us to convict the world of sin. Yeah. And so... I think that's probably the answer to that question. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I, I think, yes, Michelle? You just got to follow what your heart says, and I do agree with him. Like I would heart, disagree with you. Yeah, don't follow don't, your heart. Don't follow your heart. Follow your beliefs and follow your okay. standards and what you believe in. Okay, let's, can I back up and challenge you just for a minute? Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. Um, I get really nervous when people say, just follow your heart. Um, yes, Proverbs um we need to be careful. If you have a regenerated heart, if you're truly saved, God has changed your heart. 
but you still have sinful desires that are there. And so I agree with you in a sense. If God's changed your heart, God will change your heart. But what I don't agree with is somebody say, I'm just following my heart, and my heart's telling me to go do something that violates God's word. If your heart violates you to do anything against God's word, that's, the standard is not your heart. The standard is God's word because your heart's going to fluctuate. And, and so a better way of saying it, Michelle, and I'm not saying that, that you said it necessarily wrong. I'm just saying the best way to say it is we need to follow what the Scripture teaches and define sin the way the Scripture defines sin. Because, I mean, there could be a person that says, just for, for let me just give you an example. Um, there could be somebody that says, you know what, um, I've slept with five, five women tonight, and I was just kind of following my heart. That's where my heart led me. Um, and I'd be like, okay. Um, so, so I think we need to have the standard as, as the Scripture. Um, but the point that he's trying to make here is that there are times when you're disciplined by God. And some of you may say, well, I don't want to be disciplined by God. What happens if you're a true child and you're not disciplined? What does that mean? You let them do whatever they you're want. a bad parent, okay? You're a bad parent, and you're not teaching them anything, okay? So he's treating us as sons. Look at verse 5. Have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children? You're, you're children of God. Don't forget that. You're not illegitimate children. You're not lost people. You're, you're God's children. And so here's the, here's the admonition. If you're one of God's children, here's what you should expect. And he's going to quote uh, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 right there. It's a direct quote of the proverb there. So this is where Scripture is quoting Scripture. He's... In the scripture, he's preaching a sermon here in Hebrews and he's quoting the Old Testament. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I think he also brings in there Deuteronomy 8, 5. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Okay? So what I want us to explore here in verses 7 through 11 are three aspects of God's discipline. Okay? Can we just establish, number one, that God disciplines? I mean, it says it right there. Let's look at three aspects, okay? Here's aspect number one, the necessity of discipline. We see the necessity of discipline. Look at verse 7 through 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Basically, what it's saying is that it's necessary to discipline. If you're going astray, if you're sinning, God as a good father will discipline you, just like you discipline your child when your child misbehaves. God, there, there's, a, there's a necessary reason for God to discipline. Now, here's the thing that we don't see in this text, which sometimes makes it a little difficult. The text does not say what the discipline looks like. We're not given details. I think it's purposeful because I think it's different for every believer. God in His providence will discipline each of His children in the sovereign way He sees fit to do it. Same way you discipline your own children. I'm sure if you have different kids, you discipline them in different ways. They respond differently. God is sovereign. He knows how to discipline us, and it may look different. So I don't think there's a cookie cutter. This is how discipline looks. I think the principle is, Sometimes it's necessary for God to discipline. How He does that, don't ask me. It may look different in His providence and how He does it for each of you. But He will do it. Okay? If you don't ever experience discipline, what should you worry about? You've grieved the Holy Spirit so much that... Okay. Or, or, or what He says there, or you are not... <laughs> 
You're Ill- if, verse 8, you're illegitimate children. If, if you don't ever experience, if you're sending your heart out and you're living in unrepentant sin and you're getting away with it and you never come under conviction, you never re- receive discipline, you're never corrected by God's hand, you need to seriously ask yourself, am I truly saved? Okay? Because God will discipline the one He loves. There's a necessity of discipline. Okay? All right, so that's the first thing, the necessity of discipline. It's necessary. Second thing we see is the right response to discipline. How are you going to respond to it? Well, I don't like it, God. You don't have the right to do that, God. Why are you doing that to me, God? What did I do to you, God? Look at verse 9. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. How Shall we not much more... If we respected our earthly dads, how much more should we be subject to the Father of spirits and live? When God disciplines us, the right response is this. We respectively submit to His discipline. He's sovereign. He has the right to discipline. He knows what He's doing. He's good in doing it. And so we need to receive the discipline as His way of shaping us. Listen to Isaiah 45.9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. You see the, in the analogy here? You as the creator, create shun, are saying to the creator, you have no right over my life. You don't have the right to shape me or mold me. You don't have the right. I'm going to tell you what to do, God. Does a piece of clay have the right to tell the potter what to do? Or is it the other way around? The potter shapes the clay. The potter molds the clay. And so God is the master potter shaping us, molding us, disciplining us in the way that he sees fit if it's necessary. And how do we respond to that discipline? We humbly and respectively submit to it. Okay. Now, the third thing, so it's necessary from time to time. We need to respond to it rightly. The third thing we see about discipline is this, the benefits of discipline. What does it say there? This is in verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us what? For our good. Okay? So God is doing it for our good. It's painful, but He's doing it for our good. And it's got a twofold purpose. The first purpose is is to make us holy. What does it say there? He disciplines for our good that we may share His holiness. God wants us to be holy set apart His people. And that's why He'll discipline us. If we're living unholy lives, He's going to discipline us to make sure that we are holy. It's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know, probably one of the reasons that you're being disciplined is you did not fear God in the first place. And your lack of fear of God led you to live an unrepentant, rebellious, reckless lifestyle. And God is, God is disciplining you. And He's doing it not to be mean. He's doing it so that you'll be holy. Okay? And the second thing He says is that it will yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later on, and you may not see the whole picture in the middle of discipline. You may be like, I don't understand what God's doing. But later on, God promises it to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay, So it's going to help you in the long run. You're going to grow. You're going to mature. 
You're going to be more shaped, and the potter's going to shape you into what he wants you to be, more holy, more, more uh, mature. You're going to be um, in, in God's plan as far as what he wants you to do. Okay? So we've seen three things about discipline. Number one, it's necessary from time to time. Number two, we need to respond with humility and respect and realize God has the right to do it. Number three, realize it's for our good. He's doing it so that we will be holy and that we will, we will yield a harvest of righteousness. Okay? Now, after dealing with God's discipline, the writer gives us an exhortation to renew our commitment to run the race. Okay, look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Think about a race for a minute. What happens when you get tired toward the end of a race? Do your hands get droopy? Do your knees knock? Do your feet tangle underneath you? This is still in the imagery of running the race. Okay. Think about it in the, in the image of discipline. Could you not get discouraged by God's discipline, maybe? You could, get dis- you, could get dis- you could go through trials, you can go through discipline, and you could get so easily discouraged that you just want to plop down on the track and, and, and just like lay there for a long time. Proverbs 4.26 Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Don't give up. Don't faint. Now, I want to show you something here because there's a great encouragement in this passage of Scripture not to do it alone. Let me just ask you a question. Is it easier to run a relay race or to run by yourself? Why does a relay race better? You've got three other people sharing the load. Okay? In your Christian life, would you rather be out there on an island running this race by yourself or would you rather run it as a group all together supporting one another? Who, who wants number one? Some people may say, oh, that, that sounds good. That, that's not true Christianity. Number two is true Christianity. What's, that's number two. We're running the race in community helping each other. So when it says there, lift your drooping hands, it doesn't mean that you're all alone doing that. And let me show you where, where in verse 13, that second half of verse 13, it says this, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, at first glance, you're thinking, okay, what's he talking about here? What's the lame? What does it mean to be out of joint? What does it mean to be dislocated? Um, What's he talking about? I think this is a metaphor for the weaker or more discouraged members of the church who, the lame, either through fatigue or discouragement, have dislocated themselves from the fellowship. They've isolated themselves in weariness. And the urgent task is for those of us who are stronger to help the weaker so that they may be healed. They may be put back into the fellowship surrounded by encouragement. Have you seen that pattern happen? A person gets discouraged. A person gets faint-hearted. And what do they do? They withdraw. They isolate. They don't rely upon the support system of the church. In a sense, they get dislocated. What happens when your joint gets dislocated? I got a dislocated finger. It's not where it's supposed to be. It's out of joint. Is there such a thing as a church member being dislocated? Yeah. They've gone off and they've they've disassociated for whatever reason. And they may be living in sin. They may just be tired. They may be, as it says here, lame. What's our job as the body? To do what? Go back. Exactly. Go back to them. Help them lift their drooping hands. 
help them strengthen their weak knees and help them make this path straight. So like, they're not alone. Like in the Old Testament, you know, when, when he was holding the rock, yeah. as long as his arm was up, they were winning. And then so pretty soon his arm gets tired, so yeah. they got to help him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And so, yeah, it's a perfect image that Moses got tired, and so he needed people to come help hold him up. And so this is the importance of the whole idea that the church is to, is to be a body a fellowship, a a source of encouragement. One of the saddest things I think in my pastoral ministry is to see people that were connected to this church and now they're not. And you go ask them, you see them at Walmart, you see them in the community and they're embarrassed to, I'll be honest with you, you here comes Pastor Sean, I got to give the excuse why I'm not in church for the past two years. You talk to them, and I'm not trying to give them a guilt trip, I'm just talking to them, seeing how they're doing. And then you find out they're not going to church anywhere and they sheepishly like, you know, we're not really going anywhere and and so it, to me, that's sad because I know, I don't know if there's sin in their life, but I could probably imagine they're not at the place that God wants them to be as far as maturity, as far as growing in the Lord. Um, yeah, or, or they could be at another place, yeah. So let me just ask you a question. Have the times in your life where you've grown the most as a Christian, and there may be an exception to this, so if there is, I understand that, but for the most part, the times you've grown as much as a Christian, have they been when you've been surrounded by community or have they been when you've been isolated? Who's grown really by leaps and bounds when you've been by yourself? <laughs> How many of you have grown by leaps and bounds when you've been surrounded by a church family and encouragement? Okay. I would say it's the, it's the second. Okay. And that's basically what he's saying here is that all of us are going to get tired. All of us are going to get weary. We're going to be discouraged. And so nobody's supposed to be out there on an island. You don't want to be a dislocated person a dislocated member of God's family. You, you, we all have got to be together, okay? Now, yes, I'm sorry. Um, I, I've actually, you know, I've been through that, mm-hmm. where we have stopped going to church for, like, months, and it just seems like our whole lives are just falling apart. And then when we started coming here, everything started getting better. Everything started, you know, Do you think it could also be the fact that you got saved too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to like just like gloss over that important point that you guys got got saved um, before you came here. Yeah, yeah, Michelle. But sometimes you get those people that there's something they don't want to. Do, they want to go to church, mm-hmm. but they need to validate their surroundings in their life and get their ducks in a row before they start going back. Yeah, yeah, and that's they, how I was for a while. But I'm, I guess my question is: Do you need to get your ducks in a row before you come back to church? When are you ever going to get your? I'll tell you it straight up: I don't have my ducks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and if I waited, in, right? And I'm, and I, yeah, and I, and I agree, I agree with you. That's a reason why people don't come. I think there's guilt. They feel like I've got to get myself to a certain point. To where people will accept me, and I look good, and I feel like I'm worthy to walk into this church. And if you, if people are waiting for that, really, that's not gospel centered because that's so works based. See, when but, I, I was a Mormon. Yeah. And when I went to church, I felt comfortable, felt like I belonged. And then something went down, and then I didn't feel belonged. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while. Sure. To find the right church right. that I felt comfortable sure. going to. Sure. Yeah. And that's here. Yeah. 
Right. And I, yeah, and I, and I don't want to discount that at all, Michelle, because sometimes people get hurt at a church or burned or, or, or wounded. And those wounds are very deep and it takes a while to get back in. And, and, and so they would never understand why it would right. not go. And right. it's not because they don't like anybody there. Right. It's just because I, in my heart, didn't feel right. that I belonged. Right, right. Okay. So. All right. Well, let's look at verse 14 because he's going to talk about holiness here. I think verse 14 is probably one of those verses you may want to underline, highlight, uh, if we really stop and think about the implications of it. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, the word strive there is a very strong word. It means pursue with great intensity, pursue with urgency. And so the first thing we are to strive for is what? Peace with everyone. We've got two verses of Scripture, one by Jesus and one by Paul, that back up what he's saying here. In the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay. So I have a question. So, yes. I mean, in this passage, um, I believe that it's talking about believers. Mm-hmm. And so strive for peace with believers. Yeah, I was about to address that because I think that Paul here in Romans twelve eighteen, I think he gives us an out. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In the context of these letters, he's writing to the church. And so it's of utmost importance that among believers, we are to be at peace. There may be times when you will not be at peace with the world. Is that kind of what you're, what you're thinking about? And even then, um, it may not be possible to be at peace with another Christian. Just withdraw your fellowship, but don't let there be strife. Okay. Yeah, so I think that in the context, to answer your question, I think in the context of Hebrews, I think he's talking about believers. I don't think it's just this general, be at peace with everyone, because I, I think it... All right, let me just say this. Jesus prayed in John 17 for our unity, but never at the expense of truth. Okay, so you see where I'm going? There may be some times where if truth, if truth's on the line, you may not be able to be at peace with somebody because the truth is more important, the gospel, the, the biblical truth. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's say that um, I, uh, oh, no, I don't want to go down that path because I think it's too personal in the community. Let's just say this. There's some people, there's some pastors in the community that I would not fellowship with at all because of their stance on truth. Now, I'll be their friend when I see them in, in, in the, in the you know, Walmart. I'll say hi to them, um, but I won't pray with them and I won't interact with them as far as a partnership um, or give them the right hand of fellowship because, for one, they, or, you know, they do gay ma- marriages at their church. Mm. And I just I can't. I, the truth trumps that, okay? Um, so, so you understand what I'm saying? So I think, it's, I think you're right there, that it's, it's really talking about believers. And it's tied to the, the second thing there. What else are we to pursue? Holiness. Diligently pursue holiness. And this is a very interesting statement. 
without holiness, you will not what? See the Lord. Now, we need, to be, we need to think about this deeply, okay? I don't think it means that if you're not... I don't think it means you can lose your salvation. Like, you're not going to be able to see Jesus if somehow you sin so much. I think it has two things here. I think it has the end game and the day-to-day game. The end game is this. If we don't persevere to the end, we won't make it to heaven and we won't see Christ face-to-face. I think it's just talking about, you know, you're not going to see Jesus at the very end if you don't finish the race, and true believers will finish the race. But I think on the day-to-day basis, if we have habitual sin in our lives, it will be harder on a daily basis to have an intimate fellowship with Jesus. Think about that. The times you're living in sin, are you intimate with Christ? Are you having your quiet time? Are you reading your Bible? Unholiness clouds your vision of seeing Christ. Either sin will keep you from Christ or Christ will keep you from sin. Okay. That sounds like a preacher line or something. You must have heard that somewhere. No, just, no. So here's the question. All right. What is, if, if we're to be holy, what does unholiness look like? So, what's, so if we're called to be holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, instead of defining holiness for us, he does the opposite. He defines unholiness for us. So he gives us examples of what it's not. Okay, he's going to give us three. So in verses 15 through 17, he's going to give three expressions of unholiness. Okay, so if you want to know what holiness is, then don't do these three things because these are unholy. Okay, and they all start with this expression, see to it. Okay, so look at verse... um, 15, see to it that no one fails. Okay, so see to it. In the original Greek, it means there's a hazard, there's something out there that's going to um, pose an imminent threat on the horizon, so you've got to keep your eye out. So this is a warning. Be on constant guard for these three things. Okay, see to it that. He's going to have a that da-da-da-da, that da-da-da-da, that da-da-da-da, three things here, okay? Here's the first one. He says, see to it that... Number one, no one fails to obtain God's grace. See there in verse 15? See to it that no one fails to obtain God's grace. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1 for a moment. Remember chapter 3? Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is a corporate warning to the church that the pastor in Hebrews is giving, telling them, I want to make sure, you church have got to make sure, see to it that nobody falls into rebellion. Nobody falls into apostasy. Nobody falls into failing to obtain God's rest. It's a corporate warning to the church. Okay? So that's the big warning. Here's the second one. That no defiling root of bitterness springs up. Okay? See to it, number one, that no one fails to obtain God's grace. Number two, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. What's a root of bitterness? Why is it a root of bitterness? What happens with the root? It, it takes down roots. It's deep. And if it gets deep, what's it going to do? It's going to 
yeah, it's going to get embedded. It's going to spread. This is a direct reference back to Deuteronomy 29. Uh, God is giving a warning to Moses and the generation before they get into the promised land. Um, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. No one, when he hears the words of his sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Let me just talk about bitterness for a moment. If there's a bitter root in the life of the church, what is it going to produce? Notice, yeah, notice what it says there. Many, many will become defiled by it. It's going to leave a trail of bodies. It's going to spread like gangrene. It's going to spread like cancer. Have you ever been around a bitter person? Is it fun? Have you been around a bunch of bitter people? There's a lot of bitter people. And what he's saying to this church is, listen, it could become very easy. When you're running this race and you're getting discouraged and you're getting beaten up and you're getting disciplined, it could be very easy to get bitter because things aren't going your way. And if you're not careful, it's going to cause a root of bitterness and it's going to spread and it's going to spread and the next thing you know, the whole church is just going to be just one big sourpuss, bitter people. You're not going to be living in the joy of the Lord. You're not going to be keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. So see to it. Remember that word, see to it? Take great pains. Make sure that you, that you watch, you guard, help each other in the corporate family to make sure that nobody gets bitter, which means there needs to be a spirit of forgiveness. There needs to be a spirit of grace. There needs to be encouragement so that people don't get bitter. So number one, make sure nobody falls away. Number two, make sure there's no bitterness. And here's number three. I thought he was done talking about people from the Old Testament. <laughs> Chapter 11 is all good people. Chapter 12, he has one. What does he say? that no one falls into the pattern of immorality like Esau. What does he say there? That, here's the third that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, it's interesting. It says that no one is sexually immoral. It's actually the word pornos, where we get the word porn. The question I've asked is, do we ever read of any situation in the Old Testament where Esau was, was immoral? Go back to Genesis 26. It's about the closest thing we're going to see. Genesis 26, 34 through 35. If you remember what Esau did that disappointed his parents. You remember? 26. Yeah, 26, 34 through 35. Genesis 26. This is about the closest thing that we can see. There's no explicit teaching that he was sexually immoral, but let's just read this. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. He took two Canaanite pagan wives, and it became a family problem. It says it made, it made life bitter. What did he just talk about? Let no root of bitterness. It made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So the sexual immorality that it's talking about could be the flat-out flagrant disregard for the covenant family that Esau went and just defied his birthright and said, okay, I'm not the chosen 
child, I'm just going to go marry two pagan women and disappointed his parents. Or it could mean this. In the Old Testament, the language of sexual immorality is often a metaphor for spiritual idolatry, spiritual immorality. Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise in horror after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. Oftentimes, that's the, that's the word that the ESV uses, whoring after, prostituting after foreign gods. It's this whole imagery of, of being sexually immoral, but not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense of going and committing adultery against God with pagan gods. Um, Hosea 1.2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, that's a whole weird book of the Bible that one of these days we'll, we'll get to, where God says, Go, go marry a prostitute as a, as a word picture to see what the nation's like. But I think that we could understand this figuratively or literally. Either way, the, 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 the warning is, is don't be sexually or spiritually immoral. And then what's the second thing it says there? Don't be unholy. Actually, the word really there is worldly. One of the things you will find out about Esau is that he was only interested in temporary things. Let's go back to Genesis 25. In Genesis 25, all Esau cared about was red soup. Seriously. He was more... He was. He, if you go back and read the Genesis narratives of Esau, here's a man driven by his appetites. Okay. Genesis 25:29-34. Once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me right now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. What was he willing to do? A bowl of soup is more important to me than my birthright. I don't care, Jacob. All I care about right now is what? Immediate gratification. Temporary things. What is birthright to me? What's the promise to me? I don't really care. Jacob, you take it. I don't care. All I care about right now is you give me this food to eat because it's right in front of me. And notice what it says back in Hebrews. (coughs) Who sold his birthright for a single meal. There it is right there. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Do you remember what happened? After he was rejected, he goes back to Isaac and says, Get, you know, give it to me. And Isaac says, uh-uh. What's done is done. Jacob is the son of the blessing. And, and, and basically Esau felt remorse. And so Esau was rejected by God. Esau must have been a very big man. Like, he was a big red hairy man. So Esau was rejected by God. And even though he showed some type of guilt or remorse, notice what it says there. He found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. He cried big crocodile tears. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm really, really sorry. But was it repentance? No, because he was still just 
for his own birthday. Exactly. It's like, I'm sorry that I gave away my birthright. Not, I'm sorry that I sinned against Exactly. You. That's the difference. The yeah, what's the difference? Repentance means... Repentance is, I'm sorry I sinned against God, and I will accept whatever punishment has. Yeah. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See two types of grief? There's a godly grief and there's a worldly grief. What does godly grief lead to? Repentance. You can be sad you got caught, but that may not lead to repentance. You can be sad you have to deal with the consequences, but that doesn't lead to repentance. And I think what he's saying here is that Esau did not repent with godly repentance. He was sad. He was sorrowful. He was upset, but he did not repent. So, what is the warning to these struggling believers running this marathon race in the face of extreme difficulties. Don't fall away. Don't get bitter. Don't become immoral and worldly. Now let me just ask you those three things. Falling away, keeping our eyes off, getting bitter, becoming worldly. Question, are not those some of the top temptations we face when exhausted, struggling, and lacking encouragement in our Christian walk? Okay. What's the overall remedy? It all goes back to keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I would say this, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, both individually and in community. There's a corporate nature to this running the race. We're never called to run the race in isolation, but to run it in community, helping each other to run the race. Okay? Any final questions? Um, we've got a few minutes left here. Any? I just want to go back to verse 15. Okay. I got stuck on verse 14, so you may have talked about this already. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And when we think about this entire passage, the people running the race, the people in the race following Jesus, obviously. So I, I do believe that you know we're, this is a picture of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times, if you fail to obtain grace, that means you didn't. You're not. You've not received Christ. Yeah, you're not by saved. grace, you've been saved. Yeah, you're not saved. And so I think that we should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Because it's given a warning so that no one fails to obtain grace. So there might be people trying to run the race mm-hmm. that have been entered into the race. They, aren't they come to church on Sunday. By their own mind. And, and uh, they've not obtained the grace of yeah. God. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah. there cross, there's some interesting cross-references. And one of them is in Corinthians. And it's, um, uh, it's 2 Corinthians 6.1. It says, um, working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Mm-hmm. And if you study that, receiving something in vain is, is you're not really, you, you didn't really get it. Like, for example, if I take the Lord's name in vain, I'm calling on God, but not really, really calling on Him. Yeah. You know, I'm calling you're him, cussing him. His name as <laughs> yeah. a curse word as opposed to calling on Him. Right. And that's taking God's name in vain. But if I take the grace of God in vain, mm-hmm. then I'm saying I'm saved, but I'm really not. Yeah. And so I think there's some implications mm-hmm. there for us that 
Mm-hmm. You know, and then a lot of these other things I think spring up around that mm-hmm. root of bitterness and and yeah. um, those kind of other things come in. Not that Christians don't bring that right. in. Right. Yeah, I think. Christians yeah, do bring that that's in. that's a good point. I, what what I think Joe's arguing here is that there is a very strong possibility that within the church we're going to have some false converts that think they're saved because they did a ritual or whatever, but they've truly not been regenerate. And so they're going to be as a part of the life of the church. And when they start acting like unbelievers, we need to be very careful to make sure that we don't put the heart cart before the horse and go back and talk about these people don't need to run the race. They need to get saved first. Is that kind of what you're saying? Before they run the race. Because you, you can't run the Christian race unless you're saved in the first place. And you may have a lot of people trying religiously to, to do these things and, and they're not really saved. Is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what Okay. And so, yeah, we just need to be aware. And again, it's a, it's a message. Remember, this is a sermon to a church, not to an individual. It's to a church. And so there's a corporate responsibility. So if there's people you know that, that are, 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 are living a life that may not be godly or you have suspicions, then I think you need to see to it that no one fails to obtain the, the grace. So what do you do? You share the gospel with them. You, you, you preach the gospel to them. You pray for them. Ask the Lord to soften their heart and bring them to godly repentance. So. And it's amazing how many people I run into they are pretty sure they're Christians, mm-hmm. but they cannot articulate why. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have not really any clue. And when you ask them, when you push on it a little bit more, you find out that, that well, my good outweighs my bad, essentially what it comes down to. It doesn't, I mean, if, I mean, I'm really simplifying. There'll mm-hmm. be a complex answer behind the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But essentially, I'm, I'm I'm good to people. I do the gold rule. I try to yeah. treat other people fairly. I, you know, and yeah. they have Christian jargon. Yeah. I mean, they use Christian words and, and those kind of things. But they can't articulate that Jesus is the reason yeah. for that. And, yeah. and those people are in churches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially out here. Of those in, people are even leading in churches. Yeah, especially out here in northeastern Colorado. There's a, a lot of people that have grown up with a cultural concept of what it means to be a Christian but they've never truly been born again so come Sunday morning you'll find out how to get born again no, no, no we're talking about we're talking about that Sunday morning John 3 uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again